be opening to Acts chapters uh, 6 and 7. Acts chapters 6 and 7. We'll get right to our studies here and after our prayer. Let's bow together. Oh, gracious Lord, we're thankful for another good day. We're thankful, oh Lord, that to be able to know that we can come to know you and know that all blessings flow from your mighty hand. Lord, we're mindful of all those blessings. And we just are humble, humble Father, humbled by your goodness toward us. Lord, we're thankful and ask your help to help us as we seek to know how you love us, as we seek to learn better, Father, how to be loving as you have loved us. Gracious God, we're thankful for the great gift of our Savior Jesus. We're thankful, Lord, for everything associated with his work at the cross. Holy Father, we're so grateful that you have established hope for us, and that hope being in your Son. Father, we know there's one hope, and that hope is laid up for us in heaven. Father, we want to be there with you more than anything that we can uh, think of. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would be with those and be merciful to those who are struggling at this time, those that are on our hearts, and those that are on our list. We're praying for our brother Keith, and hopeful for his being able to come home tomorrow. And we're praying, Father, uh, continuously for his strength and recovery. We pray also for our brother Mark Posey as he recovers uh, in Birmingham Hospital. And there are others, Father, throughout uh, our brotherhood and throughout the congregation, throughout our families that need your help in special ways. Help us, Lord, this evening as we open up your holy word. That we may glean some things that will build us up and give us the strength and courage we need. And Lord, we pray that you look down upon us and forgive us as we often go astray. Father, we know we go astray in, in thoughts and words and habits and actions sometimes. Help us, Father, to be quick to turn, to repent, and to seek your forgiveness and to seek your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to finish up this little series we've been doing on the riots in the Bible. I encourage you to find other riots in the Bible that are helpful and build, uh, that can help us to see, oftentimes see ourselves. Recall just a few weeks ago that we looked at the riot in, in Ephesus uh, concerning the, the worship of uh, the goddess Diana. And Paul's work there and the other Christians and their work there and caused a riot. These early disciples truly did turn the world upside down. 
And recall also a couple of weeks ago we noticed the riot surrounding Lot's family, the riot in Sodom. And the interesting and often heartbreaking lessons from that story. Last week from last week from Luke 4, we noticed Jesus going to his own hometown of Nazareth and teaching and then they became uh, angry at him, and they drove him out of the city, out of the synagogue first, and out of the city all the way to the brink of a, of a hill, and had intended to cast him over, and somehow or another he escaped. It wasn't his time. When Jesus was on earth, he was operating according to a very strict, most definitely the divine schedule. His hour has not yet come. And so he died exactly as God intended him uh, to die. So it brings us to the stoning of Stephen and the riot that broke out in this regard. This is a, a remarkable account, a very important account here in the book of Acts. We're going to try to just focus on the rioters because that's probably all the time we'll have, will be in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and then after that, Acts chapter 7, 48 through 60. If you'll glance at Acts 7, along about verse 58, you'll see that the riot broke out into the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, of course, a Christian follower of Christ, a teacher, a servant and teacher of Christ Jesus. Verse 57 of Acts chapter 7, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The stoning of Stephen has uh, lived on. It did live on in these days. If you look in your Bible to Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4, a great persecution arose against the church. You can notice that Acts 8, verse 1. And this caused many to be scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering in house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. I believe if you flip over to Acts 11, around verse 20, well, 19, Acts 11, 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and so forth. And then the Apostle Paul makes reference back to the stoning of Stephen I remember this right. 
We'll make reference to Saul's words a little bit later. But I want to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. And I want us to notice those who did the rioting, those who did the stoning of Stephen. Okay. And I want to ask, who are these people? And then I want to ask, uh, what was their problem? And then I want to ask, what did they do, and then what were their claims? Okay, just these verses here, Acts 6, 8 through 15. Okay, so first of all, who are these people who are causing this riot? If you look in your Bible, down to Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, libertines, as they were called, and of the Cyrenians, and of Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Okay. So those are the, these are going to be the ones that caused the riot. And then if you notice in verse 12, these men will eventually seize Stephen and bring him before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. The same group of men that Peter and John came before back in Acts chapters 3, 4, and five. This is the same group of men that Jesus appeared before uh, during his, his trial. And so these are the ones that's going to be causing the riot. Okay. It says several synagogues here. What These men he refers to here, uh, several of them were Grecian Jews. In other words, they were Jewish by religion, Jewish by family, but they lived elsewhere. They lived in places like Alexandria or Cilicia, okay, or Cyrene, but they would often come into Jerusalem and sometimes take up temporary residence there. So there were a lot of different synagogues in Jerusalem. And Stephen was taking the opportunity to teach in these different synagogues. It says here that a group of them was called the Libertines or the Freedmen. These were probably Jews who had once been captured by the Roman government and been set free at some point, and they formed their own little uh, group. And so these are the ones, including the Jewish council here, that would eventually cause the death of Stephen. Now, notice the place here called Cilicia. Do you see this in your Bible? What verse is that? Verse 9. Now, who is it that was from Cilicia? Hmm? Paul. That's right. You'll check your Bible, Acts 22 and verse 3. You'll see Paul saying, Acts 22 and 3, he says, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Okay. And so it becomes intriguing to me that as Stephen is teaching in these synagogues, most likely Saul, young Saul, yet unconverted Saul, the Saul who is doing all the persecuting of the church, a ringleader of the persecutions, is there and perhaps he himself is doing disputing against what Stephen was saying. Perhaps it was Stephen versus Saul. Perhaps there was a debate oftentimes between Stephen and young Saul. And I like to think that 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 Stephen helps Saul in some way or another, maybe even plants some seeds here 
in young Saul's mind uh, as he's doing his teaching. Okay. So who are these men? Well, it explains that these are Grecian Jews and then also combining with the Jewish council there in Jerusalem, they're going to create a stir uh, here. The second question is then, what is their problem? What is their problem? Okay. And very simply it is that they do not know the truth about Christ. Notice verse 10 of Acts 6. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Okay. The reason they could not withstand his wisdom is because they didn't have the wisdom. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the, um, the understanding to put all this together and they were... They were just not able to, to stay with Stephen and uh, dispute him, really. Okay, that was their problem. Now, key in for just a second on the word dispute here. Stephen is disputing. What do you think of when you hear the word dispute? Dispute. That's what this ESV says here. What does your Bible say in um, verse 9? Disputed with Stephen? Is that what yours says? Disputed? Okay. What do you think of when you hear the word dispute? Okay. Disagreeing? Okay. Sort of arguments? Okay. Kind of a back and forth? Okay. We learn from this that when it comes to living for Christ, it's not just about defending Christ but it's about engaging the world. Uh, the ideal of following Christ is not something that, that um, we take lightly. God, in other words, God expects us to, to follow his marching orders when he says to go into the world. That's what Stephen is doing. He is going into the world. He's not waiting on people to come, come ask him about Christ. Okay, he is, he's disputing Okay, he's taking the fight to the enemy. And that God expects us to do that. You remember several uh, verses, if you've been reading through Timothy lately, but Paul often tells Timothy uh, to take up the fight, such as uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, war the good warfare, holding faith, of course, and holding a good conscience. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, you recall, Timothy is told to fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. 2 Timothy 2 one through three, be strong in the grace of the Lord and also talks about there uh, fighting the good fight. Let's see it specifically here. Second Timothy 2, be strong in the grace. Second Timothy 2 and verse 1. Okay. And then he says, uh, share in the sufferings of Christ as a good soldier of Christ. Share in those sufferings. And so... We learn here from Stephen once again that the Lord expects us to engage the world. We've got to find ways to engage the world. If we expect 
that somehow they're going to find out that we are going to church somewhere and then they're going to come knocking on our door and asking us religious questions, then we've got another thing coming. We have to engage the world. We have to bring up the subjects. We have to bring up Christ. We, we, not, we ought not to look at it as have to. It's, it's a want to. It's, it's a spirit of taking uh, what people need uh, to them. But it does end up being a good warfare. And so that's what Stephen is doing. So two questions here so far. Uh, who are these people and what is their problem? Their problem is they just don't have the truth. Now let's notice uh, what do they do? What do they do? Running back here to Acts 6, verses 8 to 15, what do they do? And they do about three things, okay? Three things. And I want you to see this in your Bible. Acts chapter 6, okay? First, they secretly bring in false witnesses, verse 11. They secretly bring in false witnesses. And then, notice it. They stir up the people, verse 12. So they secretly bring in false witnesses, and then they stir up the people. And then finally, once they get the people stirred up into a frenzy, then they come and seize Stephen. The reason they, they wait to seize him is to make sure they have the approval of enough people to come and seize him. This idea of bringing in secretly some false witnesses, of course, reminds us of the trial of Jesus. You remember that? You might want to flip back to your, in your Bibles to Matthew 26 and notice, and you've read this many times, but it's, it's worth reading. Verse 59 of Matthew 26, it says, The chief priests and the whole council, there's the council, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. Two came forward. You remember Jezebel and Ahab in the Old Testament? You remember that Ahab wanted uh, Naboth's vineyard? And Jezebel said, that's no trouble. I'll take care of that. So she found two. How is it they always find the men? There's always these men willing to lie about somebody. So they found these, these two men to accuse Naboth. And so they got in public and accused Naboth. And before long, they drug out Naboth and had him stoned. And then Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel, 1 Kings 21, 1 Kings 21, verse 10 to 13, Jezebel and Ahab took over his vineyard. And this is what they're doing here with Stephen as they bring in secretly these false witnesses. Okay. When the truth is presented, uh, there are two options. There is the the honest road, and then there's the dishonest road. Of course, they're taking the dishonest road here. And that's what happens. And just about all of these riots that we've been looking at, that's what people do. The reaction to God's word is, um, is the key to all of these disruptions that we read about uh, in the Bible. Okay. 
Now, in a sense, members of the church do this kind of dishonest reaction today, except we do it more nicely. We do it by way of whispering. If we don't like a teacher or a preacher, then we will whisper about them to somebody who's willing to receive the whispering. We will send gossip messages about them. Not being courageous enough to just go talk and sit down with the teacher and open up the Bible, but we resort to more of the nice sins, and um, we resort to whispering. But anytime God's Word is presented, there's either the honest route or the dishonest route. And so notice here, what do these rioters do? First, they bring in secret, secretly false witnesses. Secondly, they stir up the people. Thirdly, they seize Stephen. They put their hands on Stephen. And it's, it's interesting, how does, a, how does a religious man go from simply discussing Scripture to actually becoming violent? Laying your hands on someone. I can't imagine doing that. But these men got stirred up, and that was their next uh, action. Kind of set them up to lie. I think it's similar to what happens today. You get false accusers, and they are told the talking points. Here's what you need to say, and they're told that this is for the good of everybody. So go ahead and say this. When he says this, you say that, and he says, and just keep repeating it. And so I don't think mankind has changed all that much. But I think you're right. It kind of progresses uh, to. Uh, to a high point of, um, of physical entrapment. So. Right. Do they, they, they bring in these false witnesses secretly. Do the false witnesses know what they're doing? Oftentimes they don't. You notice that in, in riots, like in our country a couple of years ago, a lot of the people out there didn't know why they were out there. They were just repeating what they were told to repeat. And perhaps this is some of that as well. Okay, so what claims were they making in their accusations against Stephen? We said, well, who are these people and, and what was their problem and what did they do? Now, what claims did they make? Two big claims here, and you can see it, read it for yourself. First claim is that Stephen is against Moses, God, the law, and the temple. He's just against Moses and God and the law. Okay. And with every accusation, there's always a grain of truth. It is pretty likely, you know, that Stephen, in preaching the gospel, he does refer to the fact that the old law has been nailed to the cross, right? Colossians 2, verse 14. I'm sure that Stephen mentioned Jesus and how that Paul explains it in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, how that the old law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I'm, you're just about positive that Stephen did this sort of teaching just as we read in Paul's epistles. This is what Stephen 
uh, we'd be doing as well. So there is a grain of truth in it, but they didn't understand what Stephen was saying. Okay. Now, when God replaces a system with another system, that doesn't mean that in teaching that, that you're against God. At one time, God's system for man was to build a big ark, big boat. Okay. But he replaced that. that. That's no longer required. Okay. And so the law of Moses was eventually replaced. It was done away with, and the system of Jesus is now the system for all mankind. Eventually, God will replace and give us a new environment, won't he? When we die, won't that be a brand new environment? We will no longer be here on earth. We'll no longer be serving in the same way that we're serving now once we, once we get to heaven with God. But I'm not going to be mad at God about that. When we teach that God has replaced one system with another system, then that's in accordance with God's plans, and we just simply submit to that. And that's what Stephen was trying to explain uh, here. So one big claim is that Stephen was against Moses and the law against God, and that he was blaspheming. Of course, he was not uh, doing that. The second big claim here is, and I think you, this is in verse 14, they said, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And they're right there in Jerusalem. They're right there on the temple area. And so their second big claim is that Jesus, Stephen's God here, Jesus will destroy our place. And so they're all enraged about that. Okay. Also now, this has a grain of truth in it, doesn't it? I wonder what Stephen said to make them think that. What things can you remember from Jesus' teachings that would cause Stephen to also be talking about it here on this occasion? The temple would be destroyed. Well, that's right. Jesus, you know, Matthew 24, 1 and 2, he told his disciples, looking at all these buildings of the temple, that all these buildings would be coming down one day. And there was a destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay. You also remember that back at the trial of Jesus, that they had heard say, they heard Jesus say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It could be that these, these uh, council guys was bringing up that statement again. And certainly Stephen would be preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay. And so we're just about sure that Stephen would definitely mention Jesus' temple being destroyed, but also it being raised up on the third day. And we can't forget Matthew 24 and 35 that Jesus would often say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen didn't involve all these things, destruction of Jerusalem, the resurrection of Jesus plus the judgment day uh, coming. And so they've picked up on this and they say, uh, Stephen's blaspheming because he's saying that Jesus is going to destroy uh, this place. Yeah, we're going to run over to Acts 7 here in just a minute. But notice this curious verse in Acts 6, verse 15. It says, uh, Acts 6 and verse 15, gazing at him, 
All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And you are free to interpret that any way you want to, I guess. Either his face was glowing like Moses' face glowed back in Mount Sinai uh, days, and perhaps they were actually seeing a glow, or maybe it was just another way of saying that they were struck by the wisdom of, of Stephen. Okay. It's either a natural or, or unnatural explanation, but it's interesting that this is, this is put here by Luke uh, as this story uh, continues. Saw the light. You know, back when they had Peter and John before their council, there was a lame man that had been healed. And the healing of the lame man had not softened their heart. And I doubt very seriously that the glowing face of Stephen is going to soften their heart either. But it's interesting to look at how that is recorded. Now going over to Acts chapter 7, of course you, you recall that Stephen makes his defense in Acts 7. And takes, and takes them through a good part of Old Testament history. But skipping on down to verse 48, notice one thing that got them mad. Looking at Acts 7, 48, Stephen is going to quote from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. So here he goes. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, and then here's the prophecy, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And it was after this that they became more and more enraged. I wonder why this prophecy quoted by Stephen at this time made them so upset. Well, just simply recall that Stephen is teaching that there's a new system in play here. There's a new, there's the uh, law of Christ now. The covenant of Jesus is now here. You remember uh, Jesus to the Samaritan woman in John 4, as she talked about how that you worship in Jerusalem and we worship on this mountain. And Jesus said, there's coming a time when neither in this, that place or this place is going to be a pl the place of worship, but all men everywhere are going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And they felt like Stephen was saying that God would abandon their precious temple. So to them, that's the same thing as blasphemy. Now, it's plainly true, isn't it, that God is much too big to be thinking about dwelling in a house made with hands. Also remember that little Saul, young Saul here, is most likely listening to this, okay, unconverted, but jump over in your Bible to Acts 17 and notice how now that the Apostle Paul uses the very same language to address the idolatry in Athens, looking in your Bible to Acts 17, 24, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything. 
So young Saul finally got the lesson. I don't know if he remembered what Stephen had said, but young Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, finally, he was teaching the same principle over in Acts 17. Now, notice in verse 51 in the next place. So asking the question here in Acts 7, 48, and keep reading on down. Asking the question, okay, what is their problem? Okay. Their first problem here from verse 48 is they don't understand again, they don't understand that the old law, the old temple was to be done away with. Okay. But now look at verse 51. Looks like the second problem they have, according to this, these verses, is they do not have an honest heart. Okay. Notice he says, you are stiff-necked. Isn't that what Stephen says? You are stiff-necked. What? What does that remind you of? You are stiff-necked. Huh? Say it loud, Mark. Israelites in the wilderness being stiff-necked. What do you think of when you think about a stiff neck? Stiff-necked. Stub yeah, stubborn. Yeah, stubborn. Yeah, stubborn mule. Or sometimes even a stubborn dog. You ever had a dog, if you had a dog on a leash, they just decided all of a sudden for some reason that they weren't walking anymore and they get their, their back gets real stiff. Okay. Evidently an ox would do that. There would be some oxes that when you try to put them in the yoke, they would just stiffen up on you. Okay. This is the kind of language that Stephen is using against uh, these men. He says, you have a master... You're supposed to be under his yoke. You're supposed to submit to the yoke of your master, and you are stiff-necked, just like an animal. What courage Stephen had. And then also regarding their heart, he says, you are uncircumcised. What comes to your mind when you think about being uncircumcised in heart and ears? Well, to circumcise means to cut, right? So that it looks like they have hearts that are stubborn hearts and then hearts that are hard. You can't, you can't pry into them. You can't cut uh, into them. And so he is, he is addressing one of their problems is their heart. Their heart, of course, it is. And he goes on to say, and you can read it for yourself, starting in verse 51 and 52, he says, as your fathers did, so do you. But before he says that, he says, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Okay. How, is it, how is it they were resisting the Holy Spirit? What do you think, Larry? How are they resisting the Holy Spirit? Okay, that's right. Larry's saying the Holy Spirit's the one that inspired the prophets. The Holy Spirit's the one that inspired the apostles. The Holy Spirit's the one who inspired Stephen to be doing the teaching that he's doing. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay. The key lesson here is when we resist or reject the words of these inspired men, then we are rejecting God himself. And that's what he's saying. He says, you always do this. This is a pattern for you. This is, this is not just a new occasion for you. This is not a new habit for you. You've been set in your ways in your resisting of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, 
As your fathers have done, so do you. So what is their problem, according to Stephen here from Acts 7, 48 on down? First, they have, again, misunderstanding Old Testament prophecy. Second, they have a heart problem, a real serious heart problem, stiff neck and uncircumcised. And then, in being this stubborn, they're resisting the, the God, the very God they claim that Stephen is blaspheming. They're the ones that are blaspheming and resisting the Holy Spirit, God himself. And now they're, in, they're involving themselves in the very sins of their forefathers. And, G, and he asked the question, which of the prophets did uh, your forefathers uh, persecute? Okay. The implication of the question is they mistreated all of them. Okay. All the prophets. And um, without taking time, you know, Jesus made reference to this in Matthew 5 and verse 12. Uh, if you're persecuted, he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, uh, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. And you can go everywhere and notice how many different prophets, and you can find the occasions when prophets were uh, persecuted, even stoned and killed. And so they're involving themselves in the very sins that their forefathers have been involved in. Israel's history of not listening. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, I'm glad Ken mentioned that. Israel's history of not listening. And the apostle references that in Hebrews chapters uh, 3, 4, and 5. He often would say, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. In other words, going back to the wilderness times when they simply just would not uh, listen. Okay. So Stephen is just laying it out here and he's finally getting down to the real crux of the problem. He says, now, you've been involved in, you're in, you have been involved in the same sins of your forefathers. And he goes on to say, in that, you have rejected the one that the prophets told beforehand. The prophets said, this one is beforehand. In other words, they prophesied that this one, and he's called the righteous one. Notice it in your Bible. The righteous one is coming. Jesus is coming. You betrayed and murdered. Look in your Bible there from verses 51 through uh, 53. You betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And so they, had, they killed their own Messiah. The very, the very thing they had been talking to the children about all those many years, they killed their own Messiah. Betrayed him and killed him. And then he sums it up there in verse 53, and he says, even though you had the law, okay, we talked about Sunday, these guys were very poor stewards. God gave them the law. He gave them the law. That law is perfectly designed to bring someone to Christ. It points out the tragedy of sin. It points out the prophecies of Jesus. It has both prophecies and types and shadows they should have easily recognized their Messiah. And instead, they used the law very poorly, very poorly. They didn't come to know it themselves, and, and not know it in themselves, they could not share it with others who desperately needed to know as well. So all of this indicts them. Okay. There's no invitation here 
Stephen is bringing them judgment. He's bringing judgment against them. And when they hear these things, they become enraged. Enraged. What does it mean to gnash out with your teeth? If you start reading there in verses 54, 55, they gnashed on him with their teeth. What does it mean? Yeah, well, part of it, fit of anger. Okay, think about it as angry as you can be. Fit of anger. Find the words. Utterly frustrated, utterly furious, extremely bitter, hateful. With all of that rage, they come at Stephen. Have you ever been so mad? that you couldn't find the words to vent your frustration. And so it just became a growl. Just a growl. Ever, well, I tell you, if I'd ever done that to my mom, she's got short arms, but her, her arms can find their way. Okay. Have you ever just growled because you're so frustrated? You just couldn't find the words? That's what this means gnashing their teeth, gnashing their teeth, grinding their teeth. Okay. This is a little bit of hell on earth because remember like places like Matthew 8 and verse 12, Jesus talks about hell. He said there should be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Hell is a place for mad people. These people are full of anger. They're full of frustration. They're full of fury, and that's exactly the place called hell. It is an eternal, dark, fiery place where there will be nothing but the weeping and the growling, the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth. These men are experiencing in preview a little bit of what they will be enjoying or experiencing uh, in the afterlife. So here they come. What's their problem? Various problems, but it, these various problems come to a head in just outright rage. And so eventually, they take off all the outer garments and lay them at the feet of who? No. Saul. Young man named Saul. Okay. In other words, they didn't want to be unfettered whatsoever. Well, they didn't want to be, they didn't want to be bound. Right? They want to be unfettered. They, in other words, they didn't want any obstacle in the way. They wanted to be able to go at Stephen with, with no, uh, no hold back. They're not going to hold back whatsoever. They wanted to get rid of these outer garments so they could get good aim and have good force with their stones. So they laid down their garments. And Stephen took it. And eventually, after their rage, there was a dead body laying there before them. And I just wonder what they must have thought after their deed was done. There he lay, and I wonder what they must have thought about themselves then. But this was a huge mark on the early church there was, there was a good path here, and there was an evil path. This, 
this increased the persecution against the church, but it also increased the courage in the church. Because those that were scattered, Acts 8 verse 4, those who were scattered, they took the gospel with them. The very gospel that got Stephen stoned, they then took courage and took it themselves. And eventually, the great conversion of Saul, that young man Saul, he sees the error of his way. He's convicted of his sin. And he comes to Christ and baptized for forgiveness. And he goes into these synagogues and he has the same message that Stephen had on this occasion. It's hard to find a man equal to Stephen. It's hard to find. Can you imagine? We may study more about Stephen later. Let me encourage you to do some rereading of Acts chapter 6 and 7. And you will absolutely, I know, come away with um, a good deal of respect for Stephen, but also inspiration from him. So I wanted us to see this riot in Jerusalem and see what caused it, where were the... Where were the hearts of the people? And then um, perhaps we'll get back into it later. Thank you once again for being in Bible class.